First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Well, it's November, the month of elections and of Thanksgiving, Veterans Day that used to be called Armistice Day. Leaves fill up the yards. Sweater weather segues into parka weather. And our theme of the month this November is interdependence. Now, you might be thinking, what kind of theme is that? It's like saying our theme was bipedalism. Yes, we humans do walk on two legs, as do birds. So what? How is that a spiritual virtue to explore? to cultivate, to unpeel layers of meaning of. In the same way, you might say, yes, we are interdependent. If you use money, then you can't make it yourself. That would be counterfeiting. So we are necessarily dependent on customers or clients or an employer. And if you went off into the woods to live by yourself, surviving on nuts and berries, you're still dependent on earth and sky and plants to provide nuts and berries. Besides, that's a miserable way to live. So yes, we are interdependent. But how is that relevant to the spiritual path? Well, let's look at how this interdependence works. And let's just see what we discover about spirituality, shall we? We are made to need each other, to rely on each other. We are a social species. We aren't the only social species. The lists of species that are highly interactive with their own kind to the point of having a recognizable society and whose psychological well-being is associated with social interactions is a long list. According to the Animalia website, 2,826 species have so far been officially recognized as social species, so far. These include wolves, lions, raccoons, rodents, sheep, horses, chickens, ravens, pigeons, and many other bird species, whales and dolphins, otters and... have cooperative brood care, including care of offspring from other individuals, overlapping generations within a colony of adults, a division of labor into reproductive and non-reproductive groups. Eusocial species include ants, bees, termites, wasps, some shrimp, uh, the naked mole rat, and, some biologists argue, humans. Perhaps the better term for characterizing Homo sapiens would be hypersocial. Not only are we fantastically cooperative, which ants, bees, and naked mole rats also are, but our ability to imagine ourselves into each other's heads is amazing. Your brain is not only looking out for you, but it is also simultaneously running a subroutine mimicking how the brains of people around you are looking out for themselves, including mimicking the part of their brain that's running an analogous subroutine to mimic yours. 
you see me, and you see me seeing you, and you see me seeing you seeing me. And yes, we often make mistakes when we imagine how the world looks through another person's eyes. And we do need to be humble about claims to know what someone else is going through. But the amazing fact is, we kind of do know what others are going through. We inevitably miss some of the details that might be quite important to the other person, but it's actually astonishing that human brains can get the basic gist of what it's like for other people in completely different circumstances. Our imaginations are amazing. Sometimes someone else might know me even better than I know myself. How did evolution produce brains that can read other brains so well? Our brains, like all vertebrate brains, are built to basically do three things. Find food, avoid becoming food, and find a mate. That's their purpose. Keep us alive long enough to reproduce, and maybe also stick around to help our offspring do likewise. Each species has its own unique set of abilities that dictate its strategy for reproducing itself, and there are a gazillion different workable strategies, and of course, a gazillion squared strategies that don't work. It's a very challenging problem for genes to make an animal that can stay alive long enough to reproduce. And most of its experiments end up failing. Still, there are over 2 million known animal species currently extant, and about 380,000 known plant species, not to mention the fungi, the protista, and the monera. And while some of them are endangered, many of them are doing fine, and they're doing fine without the ability to imagine what's going on in each other's heads with anywhere near the level of detail that humans can. It's kind of amazing that a species can do what we can do, and that such a species would ever have emerged. The Earth has had five mass extinctions 440 million years ago, 365 million years ago, 250 million years ago, 210 million years ago, and most recently 65 million years ago. Six times life has covered the globe with ecosystems full of species, and five times mass extinctions wiped out between 70 and 95 percent of all Earth's extant species. And in the wake of each mass extinction, very different new species popped up. And all those millions of species over the two billion years life has been on Earth emerged and lived out the arc of their extancy, being reasonably good for their time at keeping themselves alive to reproduce. And every one of those millions of species, except a handful in the genus Homo, of which just one species survives today, did so without needing more than a rudimentary ability to imagine themselves into each other's heads. Through this superpower, at some point in about the last million years, our ancestors developed shared intentionality, that is, the ability to share mental representations of a task so that multiple people can work on it. Take something as seemingly simple, as one person pulling down a tree branch so that another person can pluck the fruit 
and then both of them can share the meal. That's a simple example of shared intentionality. Chimps don't do this. Chimps are highly intelligent and highly social. They have hierarchical leadership structures. They monitor their status within the group. They bargain. They do favors for one another, expecting and usually receiving reciprocation later. Yet even a simple case of shared intentionality seems to be beyond them. We humans are profound collaborators, connecting our brains together to solve problems that single brains cannot. We distribute cognitive tasks. No individual knows everything that it takes to build a cathedral or an aircraft. Our species' success comes, from our, comes not from our individual smarts, but from our unparalleled ability to think in groups, to make bigger brains by interlinking our individual brains. Our great glory is how much we rely on each other's expertise. So even if you could be independent by yourself in the woods, surviving on nuts and berries, that would be a miserable way for a homo sapiens to live, and no sane human manages it for very long. We just aren't made to be that way. We're made to be dependent, not just on the earth and its provisions of food and air, but on each other. And now that we understand that about each other, what shall we do with that understanding? The first thing to notice is that interdependence feels good and is good for us. It feels great to be on a team, working together, contributing our part to a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. We have this amazing capacity for interlinking our brains, for cooperating and collaborating, for shared intentionality, but we don't always have it fully activated, and we don't always notice the ways that it is engaged. The fact about what sort of species we are becomes a path of our spiritual growth when we commit ourselves to cultivating mindful awareness of connection, interrelationship, and mutual reliance. We can more consciously notice our independence with each other in our hypersociality, and also more consciously notice the interdependence of all life on our planet. As Unitarian Universalists, this is our faith path. Our denomination's current statement of purpose, adopted 40 years ago, describes our covenant in seven principles, the seventh of which is respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. The proposed new statement of purpose includes interdependence as one of seven values of which love is the central one. It says, we honor the interdependent web of existence. We covenant to cherish earth and all beings by creating and nurturing relationships of care and respect. With humility and reverence, we acknowledge our place in the great web of life, and we work to repair harm and damaged relationships. To understand who we are is the central mission of the spiritual quest. And who we are is each other. To commit to live in the unwavering awareness that the self, what I am, is the whole earth, the whole universe, that's the spiritual path. 
to commit to live in the unwavering awareness that anyone's suffering is mine, and also that anyone's act of violence, anyone's cruelty, anyone's evil is also my very own. That's the spiritual path. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all of my cries and my laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up, so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. End quote. This awareness is ultimately what spirituality is. It's why I, materialist that I am, use the word spiritual, because this awareness of interbeing is not intellectual, not cognitive, though it includes and draws upon intellection and cognition, nor is this awareness emotional, though it includes and draws upon emotions. There is something not reducible to head or heart, and that is, in short, awareness of interbeing or even shorter, spirituality. We haven't always seen and don't always see awareness of interbeing as the primary spiritual task. Sometimes the world feels more like a battlefield or a proving ground than like our very selves 
Joanna Macy describes the world as battlefield paradigm that some people explicitly embrace and that sometimes sneaks into the thought patterns of all of us. In this paradigm, good and evil are pitted against each other, and we are on this earth to fight on the good side, against the evil side. The world is our battlefield. This is the worldview of George Lucas's Star Wars movies. The forces of lights, the forces of light battle the forces of darkness. It's not clear in the universe of those movies what's, what's so bad about the Empire. Why life for beings throughout the galaxy would really be any better if Luke Skywalker and the rebels were to prevail. But we are told that Luke is the good guy and that Darth Vader has turned to the dark side of the Force. So we cheer for Luke. People for whom some world as battlefield story is the context for making meaning of their lives will be oriented toward courage, summoning up the blood, using the fiery energies of anger and aversion and militancy. The world as battlefield paradigm is good for building confidence. It's a story that reassures you that you are on the right side and your side will eventually win. Even if you don't really believe this paradigm, it's fun to indulge it sometimes, which is why so many people, including me, have flocked to the Star Wars films. A variation on the world as battlefield paradigm is the world as proving ground paradigm. The world as proving ground paradigm views the world as a kind of moral gymnasium for showing your strength and virtue at the snares and temptations of the world. We're here on this earth so that the metal of our immortal soul may be tested prior to admittance to some other realm. That's only a slight variation on the world as battlefield. The second paradigm is the world as trap. As Joanna Macy describes this one, our spiritual objective is not to engage in struggle and vanquish a foe, but to disentangle ourselves and escape from this messy world to extricate ourselves and ascend to a higher supra-phenomenal plane. Not in some future life, but in this life. The objective is to escape the trap, to live with contempt for the material plane, prizing only the rarefied life of mind and spirit, aloof from the world of strife and desire. This world of trap paradigm engenders a love-hate relationship with material things, for aversion inflames craving and the craving infl inflames the aversion. Whenever or wherever you see people vigorously denouncing something and then being caught at doing that very thing, whether it's extramarital relationships or eating fatty foods, we are seeing the playing out of a love-hate relationship that comes from seeing the world as a trap. I have seen people attracted to Buddhism out of a feeling that the world is a trap, and they hope that meditation will take them to a place removed from worldly entanglements. I tell them that the Buddha taught detachment from ego, not detachment from the world, and that even with ego... He taught being present to it, seeing it clearly for what it is, not suppressing or ignoring it. For people who see the world as a trap, social justice might still be a concern, but their approach is to get themselves detached and then help others detach, escape the trap of the material world. 
And so a third paradigm that Joanna Macy describes is the world as lover. This view beholds the world as an intimate and gratifying partner. With training, one can see in every experience something of the beauty and sweetness of primal erotic play. Since lovers are impelled toward union and oneness, this view can then segue into the final paradigm, world as self. In the Western tradition, there is more talk of merging self with God rather than with the world, but the import is about the same. When Hildegard of Bingen experienced unity with the divine, she gave the experience words that are very similar to Thich Nhat Hanh's words. She wrote, I am the breeze that nurtures all things green. I am the rain coming from the dew that causes the grasses to laugh with the joy of life. In riding a bicycle or driving a car, we can quickly come to feel the vehicle as an extension of our own bodies. In the same way, the whole world is an extension of your own body. Yes, sometimes it does things you don't want it to and can't control, but the same is true of your joints and organs, increasingly so as the years go by. Truly, everything in the world is your joints and organs, your sinews and bones, glands, skin, hair, and brain and mind. These paradigms, world as battlefield, proving ground, trap, lover, or self, are ways to answer the crucial question. In the face of what's happening, how do we avoid feeling overwhelmed and just give up? How do we not give up our responsibility, not simply succumb to the many diversions and distractions of our disjointed, frenetic consumer society? Each paradigm provides an answer. I think most of us are attracted to numbers three and four, world as lover and world as self, but most of us probably waffle a bit. Sometimes the world does seem like a battleground or a proving ground. Everything is a test and I am constantly being judged, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. The simple act of identifying world as lover, as a worldview, helps me feel the joy of that view, helps me live into it a little more consistently. Identifying world as self, as a worldview, helps me stay in it. We are our world, knowing itself, writes Macy. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again and participate in our world in a richer, more responsible, and poignantly beautiful way than before in our infancy. May it be so. Amen.